0: Happy Juneteenth weekend, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, Fintech Noir. My name is Antonio Reynolds, and I'm a law firm partner at Wiley Ryan in Washington, DC. Over the years, I've worked with many financial institutions, financial services companies, technology companies, and fintech companies on a range of consumer protection and other regulatory matters. So this podcast combines two areas of interest of mine. First, I'm fascinated by technology, and all of the amazing ways that technology can be leveraged to provide financial services to consumers, particularly those consumers who have historically been underserved. Second, I'm a strong proponent of meaningful diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm very interested in figuring out ways that we can bridge many of the wage, wealth, and access the capital gaps that exist in our country. So out of those two things, Noir was born. For this special first episode, I've invited my firm's chief diversity officer, Rashida McMurray-Abdullah, to help me set the landscape that will inform many of my future podcast discussions. I currently serve as the chair of my firm's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee, and Rashida and I work together closely on a range of DEI efforts. So, Rashida, thanks for joining me. I'll turn it over to you to give an introduction and kick off our discussion.
1: Great. Thanks, Antonio. I'm so excited for us to have this conversation and also congratulations to you in in your inaugural episode of your podcast. I mean, I think the conversation is so timely based on everything that we have been talking about just as we've been working together over the last couple of months, but it's also particularly timely in our country as we talk about these issues about equity and understanding the history of certain programs and state sanctioned initiatives that have really, really debilitated access to capital. And so, which is also very timely that you're releasing it in time for Juneteenth, which is going to be Saturday, June 19th. Juneteenth is unique in the sense that it really is the celebration, the change in time period of the last probably 150, 100 to 200 years in this country. Um, So I'm really looking forward to having this dialogue with you. I know we'll talk about some historical context, but again, congratulations, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So you want to just like, let's dive into like topic one. So as I mentioned, you know, Juneteenth is Saturday, which is awesome because it has really been this last year, a momentum of really understanding why it's significant for us to be celebrating Juneteenth. So we know a little bit before we kind of go into, particularly talking about economic depression and development, we know that Juneteenth is celebrated starting in, in Galveston, Texas, with the announcement that slavery had finally ended. The message had gotten there two years after the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed in in January of 1863. And now it was 1865. And the former enslaved individuals now found themselves having an ability to control their own wages, which meant that they could control their livelihood. Moving fast forward over the next probably 40, 50 years, you start to see some of these communities as an outgrowth of Jim Crow and other segregation, building their own financial communities because they weren't able to participate in what we would say is kind of the mainstream economy in the country at that time. So this year, you you, you and I had discussed the suppression of black economic development. So I'm just going to touch a little bit about how it pertains to where we are today. So on May 31st of this year, the Biden administration and the country remembered the 100-year anniversary of Tulsa. Now, I will note that Tulsa, as we know, is not the only, you know, city that had these different race riot massacres at the time, but it's very significant because it's been 100 years. And by way of background, the May 31st, 1921 massacre targeting Tulsa's prosperous African-American community in the district of Greenwood that bore the name Black Wall Street, was really, really telling at that time period. Because it's kind of the beginning of when we're talking about economics. The basis for the massacre started after a Black man was accused of assaulting a white woman in an elevator in broad daylight. The allegation was never proven. But ultimately, what ended up happening is local white rioters came down to the community of Greenwood They looted homes, they set fire, they bombed from the air the entire community. Block by block, more than a thousand buildings were destroyed, an estimated 300 people were killed, thousands were left homeless, and an entire community that had been a symbol of what Black Americans could achieve financially, independently, was devastated. So in that context, what does Tulsa mean, and more broadly symbolized with respect to Black economic development, in
0: the United States I mean to you. Thanks, Rashida. You know, Tulsa is important because we have a long history in our country of reinvented or reimagined discrimination and outright racism. You know, an author, Richard Rosting wrote a wonderful book a few years ago called The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government. And in his book, he describes how the American government systematically imposed residential segregation with racial zoning and certain practices that were essentially redlining, which impeded the ability of uh, many Black Americans to get financing for their homes. In terms of the discrimination that we've seen over time, some of it was government sanctioned, some of it was government permitted through inaction, and there's tons of scholarship on the wealth gap and some of the historical causes of that, so I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about, about that in particular, but it's important to think about current economic policy and inequality with an understanding of how we got here. So President Biden delivered remarks in Tulsa a few weeks ago, and he said, I come here to help fill the silence because in silence, wounds deepen. He went on to say, as painful as it is, only in remembrance do wounds heal. We simply can't bury pain and trauma forever. You know, in connection with his speech, he unveiled a significant economic plan that is designed to encourage minority homeownership and support minority business enterprises. I think that dismantling and rebuilding our economic systems will require more than just throwing big dollars at problems but i will say that i am heartened to see both the acknowledgement of the social problem as well as an initial plan
1: for you antonio you mentioned that you really have a passion for technology and you've combined it with this kind of intersection of fintech i mean for for those who are just joining us i mean what is fintech
0: so fintech is financial technology it is the deployment of technology to provide financial services to consumers, particularly consumers who have been underserved. So I think FinTech is wonderful because it allows people to connect in ways that have never been possible. People who need money have greater opportunities to connect with people who may be willing to lend money and on terms that are fair and competitive. Uh, Consumers who are underbanked, who don't have access to steady bank accounts or, um, or payment cards, are now having the opportunity to actually participate in our economic system. So FinTech is really using our computers, our phones, our smart devices, in order to provide folks with access to technology that they have not had or would not have otherwise.
1: It's really helpful on the outset of how transformative what we're talking about is for a topic. Um, I know just even dealing with, you know, um all the different applications that you can find off to deal from a technology standpoint it's really helpful to understand you know whether or not you need an account whether you could do the cash i mean that's pretty significant can you also talk about i know a lot of organizations have explored should they go to a cashless business there was a lot of this chatter about if we moved and took away the ability to be just a cashless business what about all of these individuals who don't have access like how are we going to encourage more people to be able to participate as you said now that we have these new tools
0: yeah i think it's particularly challenging you know there are many people in our country who only operate through cash and not through payment cards and so even with apps like cash app for example after cash app rolled out there was a recognition that there was a gap in the consumers that they could serve because some people didn't have payment cards that they could could attach or associate with their Cash App accounts. So Cash App and other payment um, uh, apps like that have developed kind of a debit card that is now connected with their particular apps. But it does present a lot of, of difficulty kind of getting your paper currency into digital currency that can be used online. I am encouraged that there are Lots of companies that are thinking about ways to, to do that. And there are a lot of, you know, big box uh, stores that are also getting into digital payments where it, it's making it a little bit easier for folks to be able to participate kind of in our e-commerce world. Um, but it is, a, it is a significant challenge. Um, but I, I do think that it is going to be a reality in the coming years. So something that we will need to continue to confront to ensure that people have access to our e-commerce world.
1: Yeah, that brings another point that you raised. Um, so, you know, many, I think it was like two or three weeks ago, um, the, the Southeast uh, fell victim to uh, a gas shortage. And, uh, you know, and, and in this environment, in the pandemic environment where we hoard toilet paper, Clorox wipes, anything of those natures that you're trying to figure out why are we hoarding, what came out was that one of the largest pipelines. Was hit with a ransomware attack and i only bring that up i know that we're that's not the direct conversation but this when you're talking about digital currency how does that all work in terms of us just thinking about like cryptocurrencies or any other types of digital currency and how do we encourage communities of color to think about participating in this kind of next you know i would probably say financial technology point two Yeah,
0: that's actually a really great question. I think it's challenging because we first have to establish very strong trust in the system. What I will say, especially because I advise a number of companies on privacy matters, we will always see data breaches, we will always see cybersecurity incidents. Um, It is a reality that as we kind of enhance security measures, There are smart people out there and hackers out there who will break the newest and and greatest thing. That is a reality. And so I think it's important for companies that are operating in the space where they are handling sensitive information to be in a position where they can mitigate risk wherever they can. And so that means having strong cybersecurity standards, having great privacy policies that focus on kind of data minimization and gathering the information you need, but not collecting. Tons of sensitive information for the sake of having it and really making outward commitments to consumers about how information is being used, why information is being gathered and the like. And I think once we get to a point where we broadly have an understanding of how our data is being used and handled, I think that will increase um, some trust with respect to our online and, and kind of digital world. You know i think you know people feel very stressed about even entering credit card numbers online and so now there are fintech companies that will give you credit card numbers that change and so they will manage you know whatever account the money is coming out of but you can change your number as you go along and kind of dispose of the number if you have a particular company let's say you're working with a vendor where you don't really want them to have your real card number you can do that as well so I think people are being thoughtful and creative here and mindful of the concern that, that folks have. And I will be frank, especially speaking about the Black community in particular. You know, we have a healthy degree of skepticism around lots of things. And, you know, we've had discussions with mom and grandma and grandpa about how the economy is changing. And there there is, as you said, you know, some hesitation there. But I think it will take some time. And um, hopefully over time, people will have greater greater comfort because this is definitely where not just the us the world is moving
1: i was about to say that you must have been sitting at the kitchen table with me and my mom and my (laughs) aunt having the same conversation and
0: (laughs) so many of us have had that conversation with family members and you're like "It, it will be okay it will be okay but i always tell people completely just completely random thing but with respect to payment cards for example I, and I'm sure my card issuers may be annoyed with me, but I actually change my card number every year because um, I think that is one way to help manage risk with respect to online fraud. Just change your number up and then you can put yourself in a position that if there is a breach where your data was in there from three years ago, it doesn't work anymore. So I think there are things that we can do to protect ourselves as well.
1: I think that's one of the best tips to to have because i hadn't really thought about that i you know before i joined you know i used to do a lot of fraud inv- investigations particularly financial so i'm always very excited to figure out how the fraudsters you know really kind of think about financials but yeah there's there's some distrust and until we can get everybody to kind of like buy into the system with recognition that i i think a lot of the banks and the, the big banks or, you know, traditional um, credit card companies have realized the risk that they bear if they don't get this technology, right? Because you have consumers who are saying, I am not taking responsibility for X, Y, Z payment because you're not protecting my data. I think that like a couple of years ago, one of the big stores had an incident where it was, you know, somebody was in their system. It basically went after all their credit card data and then it got released. But the company was pretty slow to recognize the risk. And I think people are really expecting that when you give them their credit card information that it's going to be protected, it's going to be secure, somebody else is not going to be able to get their hands on it. So I know we could spend hours and days on that conversation of how to advise our family members to get them into the FinTech world, but I agree with you. I'm hopeful. Um, I think it will happen. We're in a new age, so we're we're in the roaring 20s. So hopefully that will be one of the results. So I just want to pivot a little bit and have a conversation about, you know, systematic racism in our financial services ecosystem. You, You mentioned it a little bit in terms of, you know, redlining, and I did read The Color Law. It's a fascinating book. It did take me a couple of months to get through because um, it was so pervasive, and I think that, you know, I had grown up, and particularly in law school, you heard about redlining, right? You read about those kind of cases. So I'm just going to share a story, and I really want to get your thoughts on it. A Black Indianapolis homeowner had a nagging suspicion that her home was being low-bulbed into a- appraisal last year. And as we know that in America, home wealth is pretty significant, and most people, most of their assets are in their home. So she went to a great length doing a third appraisal where she did she hit her rates. She removed all the photos of herself, all of her relatives, and in fact decided to have one of her wife friends pose as her brother for the appraisals home visit. So as you can imagine, the result was a little bit different than when she first had her first two appraisals. So ultimately, what her inspired is the appraisal of, of Carlette Duffy's home more than doubled. Not just increased by a couple of thousand, literally more than double. Her home, which was assessed by different companies last year, were initially appraised at 125,000, and then it went down to 110, and then finally at 259,000 in November, according to the Fair Housing Center of Central Indiana. The nonprofit announced this month that it had filed a housing discrimination complaint on Duffy's behalf and with the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Does this happen often? And where are the, what are the implications for this type of minority economic development or depression?
0: I think I just have to start by saying, you know, I, I'm I'm Southern and from Georgia, and we just say, "child." I will say this happens a lot, perhaps not in the stark ways that we see in Ms. Duffy's situation, but generally speaking, homes in predominantly Black neighborhoods are routinely valued less than homes in predominantly white neighborhoods. And this undervaluing of of Black-owned homes remains a problem today, but it has been a problem for a long time, particularly during times of inflation and in times where home values have increased incrementally. Black-owned owners have many times missed opportunities to build wealth through home equity. Now, I want to be clear. I don't want to say that having home equity is is a panacea, but it doesn't solve the financial inequity and inequality challenges that we have in the United States but it impacts in a very tangible and measurable way how minority consumers, particularly black consumers, interact with the financial services world. So I wanna give you an example, so just bear with me, but at a very basic level, being able to borrow money from the equity in your home is one of the best ways to manage and pay for significant financial expenses. Home equity loans have interest rates that are generally fairly low, particularly in recent years. The interest is tax deductible, The loan is amortized over a 15 or 30 year period with no penalties for early repayment. And even in the context of a foreclosure of a home, the debt can be discharged during the foreclosure or in the context of a bankruptcy. So many families have used their home's equity to finance their children's education. And that often puts these young adults in a better financial position than consumers who must rely on student loans. Now, student loans are important, of course, because education has helped minorities substantially in their upward mobility. I went to Duke University on an academic scholarship, but I had to borrow a significant amount of money uh, to pay for my law school education at Harvard. And I have to say that student loans can be dangerous if they are not understood and carefully managed. You know, During the last year the Obama administration, the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African-Americans noted that Black college graduates have nearly $25,000 more student loan debt Uh, with an average of $52,726 in student debt, compared to $28,006 for the typical white bachelors graduate. And that difference in borrowing is important and it has lifelong effects. Again, student loans can be dangerous if not carefully managed. If possible, students should always pay while in school the interest that is accruing on their loans. You know, unlike most other financial products, student loans are often paid years after they are originated and dispersed. Uh, There is no assessment generally of the student's ability to repay the debt at the time that the loan is originated. Uh, If the loans are consolidated or refinanced at some point when you take advantage of that great lower interest rate, um, that normally triggers what's called a capitalization event where the interest that has accrued on the loan is added to the principal balance of the loan. So you know, in my work in the financial services space, I spend a lot of time reviewing consumer complaints that are filed with the CFPB or with the state AGs. And this capitalization issue is one of the biggest and most pervasive issues that you will see in the complaints. People are always saying, I don't understand how I'm paying on a loan, but I still owe more than I borrowed in the first place. And that happens because you had a capitalization event. You consolidated something, you refined something, And that $10,000 that you borrowed back in 2008 is now a principal balance of $14,000 because there was $4,000 of accrued interest that was capitalized when you did that refi. But we don't do a good job of explaining that to students at the time they take out loans. Again, I took out a lot of loans for law school. And I will be honest with you, I don't think that I understood interest capitalization at the time I was taking out these loans. I just knew I had to pay for some bills. (laughs) I had to get an apartment. And it just creates some challenges for for folks down the road. You know, some other things that are unique about student loans is that discharging student loan debt and bankruptcy is difficult. And the deferment of payments during school years, it doesn't really encourage students to develop what I would call the muscle memory around repayment. So some students stay in school longer than they should and borrow more to avoid entering repayment. I literally know people who are like, I owe $150,000. I cannot start repaying on this. I'm going to get another, another master's degree <laughs> to kick the can down the road. And that obviously just kind of enhances or increases the problem that is there. So it's a significant social challenge that has long term implications for, for consumers. So yes, understanding Tulsa is important. I think it's also a reminder that we don't all show up in the financial world in the same starting point and our economic experiences can have significant long term implications for our financial health.
1: That's really excellent. I wish I had had you as counseling when I initially took out my uh, student Same thing. I know a lot of my friends where, you know, your parents were willing to pay that first degree, but they weren't so willing to incur the second or even third degree. They said you were on your own. But you bring an important point because there's been a lot of discussion with um, Senator Schumer and a couple of different senators talking about the discharge of $50,000 in student loan debt. And it's gone up to the president a couple of times. And, and some of the feedback from the president has been, why should we discharge debt from individuals who got to go to predominantly Ivy League and, you know, high caliber schools? And what you said earlier kind of reminded me of, you know, why this conversation about student loans is so poignant at this time. One, the cost of college is significantly higher. I think it's something that's gone over, up, uh, over 100% in over 30 years. So that part of it is kind of distressing. But the second part of it is what you mentioned and how it is used as a tool in, in communities of color for upward mobility to say to be able to just compete for the same job same entry-level job so rather than me just saying i'm just going to get this bachelor's because i'm showing up and that's what the job requires often you find candidates of color who have the bachelor's a master's a phd right all competing for that same entry-level job so obviously that significant investment in their education Some of it is personal, right? But some of it is because from a systematic standpoint, people feel like if I don't have that extra education, I won't even be able to compete for the entry level. So I think that as we're going to this FinTech movement, those are all the types of things that people can start to think about. I've actually heard a lot of conversation, particularly with the pandemic. A lot of students took gap years to figure out how they could explore and really figured out, do I really want to go to college? Some students decided, I really don't want to make that investment. They were smarter than Antonio and I with the loans and decided, I'm just going to go to community college and really invest. And then there's been a resurgence, I think, in in looking at trade schools and looking at that being really a successful way for people to be entrepreneurs, because we always are going to need plumbers. We're always going to need carpenters. And if you've had any home renovations lately, what I've heard in the pandemic, they are so busy, you cannot get on their calendar because everybody's looking to renovate their homes particularly when they spend so much time so i'm really excited about this series of conversations you're going to have because it's a conversation i think sometimes taboo people don't want to talk about money but in context of being uh, educating your audience um i'm excited i'm i'm looking forward to listening to the next podcast
0: Great. Well, I am uh, also very excited and looking forward to our next discussion. So, again, thank you for for being on on with me today.